If you would, you can take your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Had to make sure I didn't say 2 Samuel. Colossians chapter 1, that is in the New Testament. There's a guy at the coffee shop that I go to asks me every time he sees me, are you in the Old Testament or the New Testament? I've been telling him Old Testament for a year and a half, so it's in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 1. Today we start this new series in this helpful and timely letter from the Apostle Paul. And we begin that series with the first five verses here in chapter 1. So I invite you to follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1 of Colossians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask God to bless now the reading and the preaching of his word. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for giving us your holy, inspired, inerrant word. Thank you that you have not remained far off and hidden, God, but you have chosen by grace to reveal yourself very clearly in the Word written and in the Word made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, both of which, Father, declare to us the good news of the Gospel. We pray, God, that we would have ears to hear this morning. We pray that you would protect us from being like the hard and rocky soil that Jesus talks about in Mark chapter 4 that perhaps even receives the Word with joy for a time but then has no root to endure and withers away quickly. Father, grant us persevering faith. We pray, Father, that we would be willing to be corrected by the Word and that we would also be humble enough to be encouraged by the Word and to recognize that You do indeed intend good things for us in the Scriptures and for the glory of Your name. Lord, please be with me now. Help me to speak faithfully in accordance with what You have spoken by Your Spirit. Please help the Word of God to stand forth and to be our focus. and Give us discernment, Lord, that we might hold to the things that are true. We pray this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. <clears throat> Imagine, if you would, two churches. Both churches were founded on the Gospel and received the Word of God, but outwardly the two churches could not look more different. One church is growing in visible ways with new people being added and new initiatives launching out from the membership. The other church, however, appears flat. There's not much happening, at least not that you could point to and measure. What's more, the growing church is in a vibrant city, a place where there is momentum and progress and great expectation for the future. The other church is in a town whose best days are in the past. A town where jobs are scarce and culture is declining. So do you have the picture in your mind? Two churches. One 
that appears to experience the power of God and a second church that seems to be lacking something. Now imagine that one day a group of folks arrive at the second church with an exciting but provocative message. These these new folks use all of the right words. They talk about Jesus. They talk about the cross. But they also stress some new things as well. They talk about ancient practices of spirituality. They advocate a rigorous, disciplined approach to religion. And they claim to teach some fresh ideas that will unlock the deep things of God. And then they point to that church in the town across the way and say, this is what you're missing. This is why the power of God has been so anemic in your church. Because you need to add what we have to offer. And slowly, the members of this second church begin to listen. Maybe they were skeptical at first, but over time, these new folks begin to make a lot of sense. Perhaps we are missing something essential. Perhaps there is another level to the power of God that we need to tap into. Perhaps these new folks are right, and we need Jesus plus these fresh ideas. And so... That second smaller church in that out-of-the-way town embraces what could very well destroy their faith in the gospel. Friends, this situation that we've imagined together could describe any number of churches in our day. Churches where Christ is not being outright abandoned, but instead subtly undermined. Churches where Jesus' cross is preached, but other things are added to His work as well. There are any number of churches in 2018 that could fit this situation. But what we've imagined together actually comes from the first century A.D. This scenario is precisely what prompted the Apostle Paul to write his letter to the church in Colossae. The Colossians had heard the Gospel before prior to receiving Paul's letter. They had heard the Gospel from a man named Epaphras, one of Paul's companions whom we will meet next week. But since that time, since they heard the gospel, things have taken a dangerous turn. Their city has begun to lose its place in the empire, being overshadowed by other bigger cities. And then a group of false teachers rose up in the Colossian church, and their teaching was dangerous precisely because it was so subtle. The false teachers in Colossae did not blatantly reject Christ. Instead, they claimed there were other things that must be added to Christ. Things like the worship of angels, strict dietary laws, and even some old Jewish practices. To use the technical term, these false teachers advocated syncretism. Syncretism. That's just a fancy way to say they combined a little bit of Judaism with a little bit of mysticism, a dash of paganism with a taste of legalism, and they threw them all in the pot to produce this mashup of false teaching. It was hard to define It was dangerous, and it was subtle. This is the key for understanding the letter, friends. The false teachers in Colossae were not outright denying Jesus. They were not saying false statements about Him per se. Instead, they were quietly, subtly minimizing Christ by insisting on other things too. And so, Paul writes this letter to a church that he likely never visited. As best we can tell, Paul never went to this church. 
He writes this letter and his strategy is powerful in its simplicity. Paul takes four chapters to teach the Colossians one essential message that there is no one and nothing that can rival the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Colossians is about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Those two words, supremacy and sufficiency, are the theme of this book. Jesus Christ is supreme. He is the Son of God and the sustainer of the universe. He is the reconciler of God and man. And He is the revelation of God's mystery. He is the head of the church. And He is the holder of all things together. He is the fullness of God. And He is the foundation of the new creation. Jesus Christ is supreme. And therefore, Jesus Christ is sufficient. Don't miss the connection. He is supreme and therefore He is sufficient for the life of His people. Those who are rooted in Christ by faith have everything they need in the Lord Jesus. They must not be taken captive by empty philosophies and human traditions. They do not need to listen to rules and regulation that have the, that have the appearance of wisdom but no value in restraining the flesh. They must not let anyone disqualify them or subject them once again to the shadows of things now passed away. Instead, those who believe in Christ need quite simply to live each day in light of who Jesus is. Because of Christ, believers are able to put off the old practices of sin and put on new practices that reflect the character of the Savior. Because of Christ, believers can build countercultural homes that reveal the glory of God. Because of Christ, believers are freed to give themselves wholeheartedly to their daily work, knowing that in doing so, they are serving the Lord Christ. Believers in Christ are equipped to live compelling, winsome lives among unbelievers so that they too might be saved. Jesus Christ is supreme, and therefore Jesus Christ is sufficient for the life of His people. Supreme and sufficient. That's the whole book. It's the theme of of Colossians. And that's why we're going to spend the next several months considering Paul's short but powerful letter. As I said earlier, there are many churches in our day that would fit that imagined scenario. Two millennia have passed, but the danger facing the Colossian church is the same danger facing the church today. It's the danger of minimizing Jesus. Minimizing Jesus, not by rejecting him per se, but instead by adding to him as though he were not enough. All of that to say, we need this letter, brothers and sisters. I know that all of God's word is inspired and without error, praise his holy name, but we need this letter. As a church, we need to be reminded that Christ is indeed supreme and therefore we have all we need in him for the life that God has called us to live. As we look now to the details of the text, you'll notice that Paul begins his letter in the typical way. Look there in verse 1. Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and in verse 2 he calls his recipients saints and faithful brothers in Christ. On one level, this is standard stuff. Read any of Paul's letters and you'll find similar greetings. But on another level, Paul is already confronting the influence of the false teachers. Think about it, friends. As a divinely appointed apostle, 
Paul is an authorized messenger of the risen Christ. Paul speaks the true word of God because as an apostle, he speaks the very words of Christ. He speaks on Jesus' behalf. So if the false teachers want to claim some special insight into the things of God, then they face a tough opponent because Paul is no amateur. He is an apostle. He speaks with the voice of Christ. He speaks the words of Christ. He's an authorized messenger who speaks and writes with Jesus' own authority. What's more, the the Christians in Colossae are called saints. Paul calls them saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. We tend to have skewed notions of the word saint as though it describes some higher plane of existence for a select few holy people. But in the New Testament, every believer is a saint because every believer belongs fully and completely to the family of God. Every believer is a saint because every believer is a citizen of God's kingdom, having been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son in whom we have the redemption and forgiveness of our sins. Paul calls them saints. Consider how vital this would be for the Colossian Christians to hear. The false teachers are telling them day after day that they enjoy something less than the fullness of God. So what is the first thing that Paul does when he writes this letter? He tells them in the very first line, don't listen to them, brothers and sisters. You are saints of God. You do belong to God's family. You have experienced the fullness of God because right now you are in Christ. Did you see that? They're faithful brothers in Christ. They're already in Him. You see, even in these introductory verses, Paul is already demonstrating his heart for these Christians. He's already laying the foundation for gospel truth upon which he's going to build the rest of his letter. And as we enter the body of the letter in verse 3, we find that Paul continues laying this same foundation. In verses 3 to 5, Paul begins to express thanksgiving to God for the Colossian church. In fact, thanksgiving, as you can see in verse 3, is the main point of this section. When Paul prays for the Colossian church, his first and constant response is thankfulness for all that God has done. Specifically, Paul's thanksgiving highlights two realities of the gospel that remind the Colossians that they have come to know the one true and living God. Two gospel realities. Paul highlights the gospel's fruit and the gospel's hope. Let's look at each one of those more closely. First of all, the gospel's fruit reveals the true work of God. The gospel's fruit reveals the true work of God. As we noted just a moment ago in verse 3, Paul begins by giving thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a unique and purposeful way to speak about God. If God is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, then note what that means concerning Jesus' identity. He is Himself the Son of God, fully divine with the Father, sharing the Father's nature and glory. You see, it's never, far, it's never far from Paul's mind in this letter. He can't go more than a few verses without coming back to say, no, Jesus Christ really is supreme. He really is glorious. It's never far from, far from his mind. Even in this Thanksgiving section, Paul proclaims Jesus' supremacy. In verse 4, Paul expresses the reason for his thanksgiving. Notice again what the Apostle writes 
We'll start in verse 3 and read through verse 4 again. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since, or we could say because, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. So as Paul hears about the Colossians, it's the fruit of the gospel in their lives that gets his attention. It's the fruit of the gospel. Faith in Christ Jesus is the saving response to the gospel. A saving response that is brought about by the Spirit through the proclamation of God's Word. And then from a heart of faith, God's people respond with love for one another. As we come to know God's love in Christ, we're empowered to love others just as we have been loved by God. This is foundational New Testament teaching, friends. The gospel's fruit is twofold. Faith in Christ and love for His church. In fact, if you don't find those twofold fruits, then you probably don't see the gospel working. Faith in Christ and love for His people. It's the fruit of the gospel that gets Paul's attention. But you'll notice here in verse 3 that Paul gives his thanks to God for these gospel realities. He does not commend the Colossians for believing in Jesus. And he does not applaud them for their brotherly love. Now, is that because Paul thinks the Colossians are insignificant? No, far from it. Rather, Paul understands that these gospel fruits reveal first and foremost the work of God among his people. The gospel's fruit is not primarily about us, but about the God who produces that fruit in us. Every Christian's life is a testimony of praise to God. It is God who graciously grants his people faith in Christ through the preaching of the gospel. And it's God who enables his people to love one another in response to the gospel. That's why Paul begins as he does. He gives thanks to God because the Colossians' faith and love are God's work brought about by God's grace through the preaching of God's gospel. Now you might be thinking, this is a strange way to begin a letter that's intended to help beleaguered Christians. I mean, they're in trouble here. And Paul starts by giving thanksgiving to God. This is a strange way to begin a letter to beleaguered Christians. You might be thinking, why not just get to the practical stuff about not believing false doctrine? But that's just it, friends. This is the practical stuff. This is the antidote to the poisonous subtleties of the false teachers. Paul's thanksgiving reminds the Colossians of this simple but powerful truth that God is working among them already. That God is at work. Their persevering faith and their selfless love may seem small in the world's eyes. They may not grab headlines or sound, flesh, or sound flashy. But it's there in those daily expressions of faith and love that the Colossians experience the very power of God. Do you see it, friends? By thanking God for their faith and love, Paul is reminding these believers that they are, in fact, participating in the work of God. They don't lack anything because God is working among them. They've already tasted the fullness of God's power. They trust Christ. They love one another. And that means God is present among them in His fullness. Listen, friends, I don't know of any church worth its salt that doesn't long to see God do more great things among them. Right? 
I mean, I love William Carey's bold statement that we should expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. I like that. It's right and good to expect God to do mighty things. And it's right and good to then risk your life in obedience to His Word. I don't know any church that's worth its salt that doesn't share this sentiment that we long to see God move and work in our day. It's right to do so. But at the same time, I want you to listen to me carefully. At the same time, we should be careful that we not define greatness too narrowly. We should guard against the tendency to equate the work of God solely with the spectacular. That's what Paul cautions us against here in verse 4. He's reminding us that God's work is seen most clearly in the fruit of the gospel. Persevering faith and brotherly love are not spectacular. Do you hear me? Persevering faith and brotherly love are not going to get you on any fastest growing church list. They're not spectacular. They are simple, everyday realities of the Christian life. And yet, Paul says, this is the work of God. This is what God is doing. And He's doing it among you. In fact, wherever you find faith and love present in a church, it's there that you find the work of the triune God. So catch what this means, brothers and sisters, for a church like us. This means that right now, today, in our current situation, we can join with God in the work He is doing among His people. Not a single circumstance has to change for us to join with God in the work He is doing among His people. That's significant, friends. That's significant. Working for faith and love in the church is not spectacular, but it is eternally valuable. It is a high and worthy calling, and it's the calling that every believer has received. Here, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the opportunity to join your life with the great work God is doing through the Gospel. You can hold to the faith and encourage others to do the same. You can love one another through prayer, discipleship, encouragement, and service. You can persevere in sound doctrine and strengthen the bonds of our fellowship. And as we do those things together, an incredible reality becomes clear. The reality that God, the triune God of the universe, is working right here in and among His people. You know, somebody asked me this week, what's next for Midtown? This person was a pastor. Pastors have awkward conversations with each other. This guy asked me, what's next for Midtown? And he had just finished telling me about the new initiatives and projects in his congregation, and they sounded wonderful. They did. And so it was a natural question for him to ask, what's next for Midtown? And I'll be honest with you, for a moment, as I stood there talking with him, I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed that I didn't have an answer that matched what he had shared. I didn't have a fresh plan. I don't have any new vision. I'm not creative. I couldn't report anything spectacular. There's a basketball goal on the wall. 
I was embarrassed, and it would have been very easy in that moment to conclude that I was missing out on the work of God. You see what I'm saying? But then in the Lord's mercy, he had already planned that I would preach this text. And he knows that I'm a stubborn, ignorant, hard-hearted person. And he made me remember verses 3 and 4. And I remembered that our faith in Christ is growing, praise God. And that our love for one another is deepening, praise God. And with that reminder, I was able to say to my friend, who's a good dude, I like him. I was able to say to my friend, well, at Midtown... What's next is that we're thankful to press on in the work of God that's happening among us through the gospel. That's why we need this passage, friends. That's why we need this book. Because it reorients our view of God's work. Faith in Christ and love for one another, that is the work of God. And when we give ourselves to those things, we don't need to look around for what we're missing. Instead, we can, by faith, continue to give ourselves to the work of God right here in our midst. So, first sermon in Colossians. I'm asking you to do do just that. Will you join me in reaffirming that right now, in our current place, in our current set of circumstances, we have the opportunity to join with God in the work He is doing among His people. We're not missing anything. Holding to the faith, loving one another, these are mighty things. The gospel's fruit reveals the true work of God, and in that work we give God the thanks. The second gospel reality in Paul's thanksgiving comes in verse 5, and it concerns the gospel's hope. Specifically, Paul shows us how the gospel's hope sustains the true people of God. The gospel's hope sustains the true people of God. When verse 5 is added to verse 4, you notice that Paul has now mentioned the three most well-known virtues of the Christian life, faith, love, and hope. Listen again to verses 4 and 5 together. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Taken together, those three virtues are the summary of the Christian life. So think of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So again, on one level, Paul is reminding the Colossians that they already enjoy the fullness of the Christian life. How so? Because God through His Spirit has manifested these three among them. Faith, love, and hope. It's the fullness of life. You have it, Paul says. But on another level, there is something unique about the hope that Paul speaks of in verse 5. He's not merely trying to sound like a Christian and putting this triad together. No, he's making a powerful point about the foundation of the Christian life. A foundation that the Colossians already know by faith. But to see Paul's point, you've got to pay attention to three distinct features of the hope that he describes in verse 5. So notice these features with me and note especially how they build on one another. Number one, the hope of verse 5 is outside of us. It's outside of us. Usually, we think of hope as something we experience inside of us. I'm hopeful things will turn out well, or I'm optimistic about the future. That's how we typically think of hope, as an inward experience or optimism. But that's not how Paul views hope here in verse 5. 
For Paul, this hope is an outward reality. It's something outside of us that can only be grasped by faith. You can see this quite clearly when Paul says the hope is laid up for us in heaven. So very simply, where is the hope? Not in my heart per se, but in heaven with Christ. That's the first feature. The hope that Paul has in view is an outward reality. It's outside of us. Number two, the hope in verse 5 is certain. It's certain. Usually we think of hope as something akin to wishful thinking. I hope my team wins the big game or I hope this new job comes through. But again, that's not how Paul views hope in verse 5. For Paul, this hope is certain beyond any doubt. Notice how he describes the hope as laid up in heaven. That phrase, laid up, is just one word. Laid up is the key. The idea here is something that is set aside or secured for the future. Think about a family heirloom that's stored in a safety deposit box or in a vault. That heirloom is laid up for you in security. You can have confidence that you will receive the heirloom because its position is protected. That's the same idea in verse 5. This hope is the heirloom of every believer kept safe in heaven's vault. It cannot be stolen, it cannot be corrupted, and it cannot be lost. That's the second feature in verse 5. The hope is certain. Now, the final feature that brings it all together. This is the pinnacle of what Paul is trying to get at. Number three, this hope sustains. The hope is outside of us. The hope is certain. And this hope sustains. Usually, we think of hope as something that flows out of faith. I believe in something and therefore I'm hopeful about it because I believe. But once again, that's not how Paul views hope in verse 5. For Paul, it's the other way around. It's not that faith sustains hope. It's that hope sustains faith. Notice how verse 5 is linked to verse 4. Why do the Colossians trust in Christ and love one another? Because, you see it? Because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. The hope is outside of us. It's certain. And therefore, this hope is what sustains God's people throughout the Christian life. The false teachers are trying to sell the Colossians something they simply don't need. Already, through this heavenly hope, they have received God's provision for the Christian life. They have a hope that cannot be shaken, a hope so certain it will sustain them in faith and love. It's outside of us, it's certain, and it sustains. Now, the key question. What is it? What is this certain, sustaining hope? We've seen the features, but what exactly is it? Well, notice the rest of verse 5. The Apostle Paul is great because when you ask him questions, he answers them. Notice the rest of verse 5. Of this, of this hope, you have heard before in the word of the truth the gospel. Or look down at verse, 30, or verse 23 towards the end of the chapter where Paul says, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Or even look at verse 27 where the apostle declares that Christ dwelling in believers is the what? The hope of glory. So this certain and sustaining hope is nothing less than the good news of the gospel that they've already heard and believed. It's what they've already received by faith. It's the good news that Jesus Christ is the fully divine Son of God. 
that He humbled Himself and took on flesh for the salvation of His people, that He fulfilled the law and went to the cross, not because He deserved to die, but in order to atone for the sin of His people, that having died, Jesus did not stay dead, but rose again and is seated now in the heavenly places, and that from heaven's throne, Jesus reigns in the power of His indestructible life. This is the hope laid up for believers in heaven. It's the hope that life eternal belongs to me because I belong to Jesus. And nothing can destroy Him. And therefore, nothing can hurt me. There's nothing to add to the Gospel. For the Gospel is the very Word of God. Secured by the character of God. Grounded in the faithfulness of God. Rooted in the blood of Christ that cannot be changed. It's kept in heaven for you. They can take your life, your house, your family, your job. They can't get into heaven and take your hope. There's nothing to add to the gospel. For the gospel is the very word of God. The once for all declaration that Christ is supreme and sufficient for the salvation of his people. Friends, do you hear what Paul is telling these dear Christians? He's not even five verses into the letter. And already he's told them everything he needs to say. The unspeakable good news that the Christian life does not rest on us and our ability to do something spectacular. No, the Christian life of faith and love rests on the unshakable hope of Christ's work on our behalf. In the gospel, God's people have all that they need. A sure hope that will sustain day by day as they do the work of God, trusting in Christ and loving their neighbor as themselves. And so what should we do in order to experience then the power of God in our midst? What should we prioritize in order to see God work among us? Well, we should devote ourselves to the proclamation and celebration of the gospel. We should devote ourselves to the proclamation and celebration of the gospel. Friends, I hope you see here from the very words of the Bible that building your church on the gospel is the apostolic pattern for ministry. It's not clever, it's not new, it's old. And it's what God gives His people to do. The gospel is what brings us into the Christian life as we repent and believe the good news of Christ. And the gospel is what sustains us throughout the Christian life as the gospel's hope becomes the solid ground for our feet to stand on in faith and love. So just very practically speaking, tomorrow when you pray for that church member and ask God to encourage her with the truth of the gospel, that's the work of God in His church. When you continue to cultivate that relationship with your unbelieving neighbors so that you can speak of Jesus, that's the work of God in this world. When you work hard at the things that God has given you to do, whether you're working in your home or in your workplace, That's the work of God in demonstrating the supremacy of Christ over all things. And when you come here next Sunday to hear God's Word and to sing and pray and listen and do the things that we do every Lord's Day, that's the work of God in your heart and in mine. But here's the best news of all. When you can't seem to find the strength to do even those things, The God of the Gospel invites you to remember that it's His work that sustains your faith, not the other way around. And that's good news.
It's the gospel's hope that keeps you going in this thing called the Christian life. The way to press on as a Christian is not to pull yourself up by your own spiritual bootstraps. It's not to find the latest spectacular thing that promises some fresh experience of God's power. No, the way to press on in the Christian life is to remember that Jesus Christ is supreme. That there is no one and nothing that can rival Him. And therefore, Jesus Christ is sufficient. And we have all what we need in Him. And so, we can say with the Apostle Paul, Thanks be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it boggles my mind that you would choose to demonstrate your power and your might and your work in such humble, ordinary ways as people believing your word and loving each other and speaking of Christ to those whom you place in their path. It boggles my mind that the almighty, unseen, invisible God would do His work in such humble ways. And yet, Father, this is how You get the glory. This is how the world sees that You are magnificent when You work among Your people, sustaining them in the faith, sustaining them in loving one another. Father, help us to repent of our idolatry of the spectacular. Help us to repent, Father, of the subtle ways that we think there is more, there must be more to this than just the gospel of Christ. Help us to repent and return us again, Father, to this sure and certain foundation that there is a hope laid up for us in heaven and that its security rests on Christ and not on us. We pray this in his name. Amen. Y'all please stand. Let's sing. remains, though shifting sands before us lie, the one who washed away our stains shall bear us safely to the skies. The floods may rise, the winds may be, torrential rains descend, yet God his own will not forget, he'll love and keep us still the end. And keep us till the end. This is eternal life to know the living God and Christ the Son. The Savior will not let us go until this saving work is done. Our debt was great as was our need, but now the price is paid. Who can behold Emmanuel bleed and out his willingness to save? We trust your willingness to save. The Lord acquits who can condemn, though Satan's accusations fly. His power can never reach our names to blind from the book of life the sun has surely made us free his word forever stands and all our joy is knowing we are graven on his word 
To Christ secure we stand, for with His Spirit we've been sealed. By grace we'll see the promised land, where every sorrow shall be healed. To God who gave His only Son, to Jesus Christ our Lord. To God the Spirit three in one, be songs of praise forevermore. We'll sing your praise forevermore. Amen. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Amen. You're dismissed.